So this morning we continue in the Gospel of John, and when we met last week, we were looking at Jesus who was teaching in the temple, and the setting of that teaching in the temple was at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of three major feasts that the Jews were required to attend. This was the feast of all feasts. It was the great feast. It was the one that brought about the most celebration in the lives of people. And so we come to John chapter 8, verse 53 of chapter 7 and verse 8, and we have what commentators call an excursion. And what they mean by that is that there's a disruption in the flow that takes place from John 7:52 and where it will pick up in John 8:13. And so there is in this passage of scripture this thing that is called textual criticism. It is a technical thing, it's a biblical responsibility to investigate the truth of scripture, the manuscripts that have been used to translate scripture. And so this is one of two New Testament texts that have fallen under great scrutiny in the field of textual criticism. The other is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So let me say this at the very, very beginning. Hear this above everything else in these next three or four minutes. I believe in biblical infallibility. I believe in biblical inerrancy. I believe that the Bible that you and I hold in our hands is absolute, complete truth. But what textual criticism does is it's called the science of manuscript analysis. So I want to read some things and make sure that it's stated correctly because it would be very easy to mistakenly say something that wouldn't be accurate. So what textual criticism does is it compares ancient biblical manuscripts to determine the contents of the original autographs, those that do not exist anymore. You remember that the bulk of the New Testament was written somewhere in the mid-50s to the early to latter 60s, with the exception of the Revelation, which was believed to be written at around 90 A.D. So before the invention of the printing press, which came around 1450, biblical manuscripts were copied entirely by hand. They were on scrolls, they were on other kinds of writing material, but there wasn't anything like a printing press. We take for granted the ability to sit down at a computer and print something out and print dozens and dozens of copies. It wasn't that way for much of our existence. Through the careful process of textual analysis, errors and embellishments that are the result of being copied by scribes, these are easily identified and corrected by comparing manuscripts in question with other earlier manuscripts. Now, because so many New Testament manuscripts have survived, biblical scholars are able to determine the original text with an extremely high degree of accuracy. We mentioned this last week in the class, How to Study the Bible, that there are over 5,000 supporting Greek manuscripts in existence today, with another 20,000 manuscripts in other language. Some of these ancient manuscripts are within 100 years of the original writing. And so there is great accuracy. It is estimated that the Bible that we have in our hands is over 98% accurate to the original autographs, and those variations, quote-unquote variations, are very insignificant, very minor. They don't affect doctrine. They don't affect the teaching of Christ. They don't affect salvation. It's an example where one gospel would say the sixth hour, another gospel would say the ninth hour, and the variations are due to how they track time, by Roman or by Jewish method. So the variations are incredibly minor, but this 
field of textual criticism has landed on this passage. And so scholars believe today that this text was not a part of the original autograph that John would have written. So there's some concerns over this passage. And let me summarize these for you very briefly. And again, this does not bring into question the infallibility or the inerrancy of Scripture. It explains why this text is where it is. So here's the first concern, is that it is not in the earliest manuscripts that we have a record of. So, for example, if you look in your English Bible now at this passage beginning at 753 all the way to 811, you'll probably see a big parenthesis, you'll see an asterisk or some other mark, and you'll see a footnote that says, not in the earliest manuscripts. And what that means is, the earliest manuscripts that can be found do not contain this passage of Scripture in it. The earliest church fathers who wrote commentaries on the Gospel of John made no comment of this passage of Scripture, indicating that it was not there in the very earliest of the manuscripts that were used. It does appear in the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation that was done by Jerome in the latter part of the 4th century. So that's one of the major questions about this passage of Scripture, is it not in the earliest manuscript. Second question is placement. This event disrupts the flow that we see in John 7.52, where Jesus is teaching in the tabernacle. He has gone to great lengths to make mention of himself as the one to whom you believe in, flowing from you, will be springs of living water. That brings to mind the very important water ceremony that was a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you look down into chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is going to say, I am the light of the world. And this connects the lighting or the lamp lighting ceremony that was also very significant with the Feast of Tabernacles. So in between one expression of the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus' fulfillment of that, the living water, is the mention of him being the light of the world, which fulfills another major part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so slid between that is this passage of the woman who was caught in adultery. In addition to that disruption of flow, earlier Greek manuscripts have this passage in five different locations. It's after John 7:36, after John 7:44, here, after John 21:25 and also at the end of Luke 21:38. So the reason it is placed here, most believe that it's placed here because it fits in very well with two statements that Jesus is going to make in chapter 8. The first one is in 8.15, where he says, I pass judgment on no one. And as we'll learn from our study today, he does not judge or condemn the woman who was caught in adultery. And then also in 8.46, when he says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin, which will make more sense when we get to the end of our message today. So that's the second issue, is placement. The third issue is vocabulary and style variation. Now, you and I can't pick up on this, reading this in the English. Where this becomes more obvious is if you can read New Testament Greek. If you can read New Testament Greek, the word usage, the style of text that is used, sticks out like a sore thumb. We can't pick that up because it's in an English translation. So, for example, scribes and Pharisees that is used here in this passage is used nowhere else in the Gospel of John. When he speaks of the Jews, excuse me, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he uses the word the Jews. It's also the only place in the Gospel of John that the Mount of Olives is mentioned. 
So the style and some of the choice of words compared to the rest of the Gospel of John is different, and that indicates another variation that has brought textual criticism onto this passage in the way that it has. So while there are questions raised about this passage, by the most conservative of scholars, these same scholars who question the early manuscript, the placement, and the vocabulary style differences, still believe this to be an historical event from the ministry of Christ, although the author is unknown and the exact location it should be placed is a challenge, they still unanimously believe that this is authoritative scripture that displays an incident in the life and the ministry of Christ that was preserved by oral tradition and was inserted into the Gospel of John at some unknown time. Nobody can know when, nobody knows by whom, nobody knows who the author actually is, but these questions are here, and it's important for us to address those because when you see not in the earliest manuscripts, that means something. It doesn't mean that we dismiss it. It doesn't mean that the Bible is fallible or is filled with error. It just means there's some unresolved questions about this. This fits in very, very consistently with the ministry of Christ as expressed in all of the gospel accounts. So I felt it was important to address that on the outset. And again, let me say, I believe wholeheartedly in the inerrancy and in the infallibility of Scripture. Textual criticism in this incident does not erode the authority of this passage. Now, to be sure, there are some textual critics who will dismiss portions of the Bible because they don't hold to the infallibility or the inerrancy of the Word. Let's look together in John 7.53, and we're going to go through chapter 8, verse 11, and then we'll talk about this in four major sections. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that, the, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. So we look at this in four sections. The first one is the setting. We see this in these first three verses. Everyone went to his home, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So the setting is very simply teaching in the temple. Now, some believe that this event in the ministry of Christ may have, in fact, taken place during the Passion Week, where Jesus was going into the temple each day, and then he was going to the Mount of Olives at night. This would be more consistent with how the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, track Jesus' movement during the Passion Week. In fact, in Luke 21, 37, now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called 
Olivet. Now, because of that, this is why some earlier Greek manuscripts would have put this passage at the end of Luke 21:37. They would have gone ahead and inserted this encounter with Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. For whatever reason, it didn't land there. It's landed in our passage today. So we see in this setting that all the people are coming to Jesus. His popularity is off the charts, which would also be consistent with Passion Week and the triumphal entry that we'll look at several, several months down the road. Now, the word all here doesn't mean every single person. It simply means a lot of people. Jesus Jesus garnered a lot of attention everywhere that he went. And as we've already looked at, his teaching was incredibly different from the teaching that the average Jew was going to hear from the scribes or the Pharisees or even the rabbis. Jesus' teaching was filled with life and hope and with truth. The teaching of the Jew of that day was the burdensome legalism handed down by the Pharisees to keep people under control. So as was the habit of the rabbis, Jesus sits down and begins to teach the people. They've gathered around to listen to him, but there's no record of what Jesus has actually taught, much like in the Feast of Tabernacles. We just know that he was teaching the people and they were hanging on his every word. Now, since the temple is a large outdoor complex where you can, you can fit hundreds and hundreds of people, it was easy, easy for the religious leaders to mingle in and out of the crowds to hear what was being communicated. And in fact, this is what they were doing with Jesus. And this is how they would call into question what it was Jesus was teaching. So this is what is taking place. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching and there's a large crowd that has gathered around him. Number two, we see the confrontation here. This is in verses 3 and 4a. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. So the first thing we see here is the sinful act. We see the sinful act of the woman. Now Jesus is seated and he's teaching the crowd and suddenly the religious leaders barge into this teaching environment likely dragging this woman, they set her in the center of the court, the center of the temple court, where the rabbis would be teaching, an incredibly humiliating event for this woman. Think about how embarrassing it would be to caught red-handed in some kind of egregious sin, and then to be brought publicly and be made a spectacle of in a large group gathering. And this is exactly what the religious leaders have done. Now, adultery has almost always been considered a serious sin. I say almost because it's not considered a serious sin now, unfortunately. Adultery has become very, very acceptable in our culture and excusable even within the Christian community, believe it or not. But adultery in this environment, in this day and age, brought incredible humiliation. It would bring great hardship to someone's life. And it could also potentially bring excommunication from that community that the person lived in. It tears family apart. It can bring a loss of income to individuals depending upon the kind of work that they do. This is an incredibly disruptive sin that is public that this woman has been now caught red-handed in. Secondly, we see a decision that is being demanded by the religious leaders. Verse 5, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women... What then do you say? Now remember, from all we've talked about so far, the religious leaders heralded Moses as the great prophet. They hung on his teaching, and his teaching was going to be far and above everything else they were going to cling to. In fact, one sect of 
the religious leadership only accepted the first five books of the Bible. But this sin of adultery is incredibly clear in the mind and in the heart of every Jew. We read in Exodus 20:14, "You shall not commit adultery." Right? Part of the Ten Commandments. Part of the way we're to respect other people is by not committing adultery with someone else's spouse. Now, Jesus knew this command, did he not? He authored it, but he also repeated it. Matthew 5:27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus expanded it into what man would think in his heart. He would say in 5:28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This goes both ways, female to male and male to female. The physical act of adultery is just as egregious regardless of who is the one committing it. And Jesus would expand that to say to look on another individual and the lust for them in your heart makes you guilty of adultery in the spirit of the law. But not only is this law incredibly clear, the punishment is also incredibly clear. And this is what the Pharisees are causing Jesus to give consideration to. We read this in Leviticus chapter 20. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife and the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, I wonder what that would do to adultery in America if that was the law and order of the day. Do you think it would have a deterrent to this practice? I think it would. But we don't live in that kind of world anymore. So the punishment was also very clear. So this clear teaching about the sin of adultery comes with a very clear consequence. And this is what the religious leaders are wanting to emphasize. And so they pose the question, Teacher, what do you say? Now, hearing them call Jesus a teacher is an indication that there's some impure motives in the question that they're asking Him. Jesus was a very respected teacher of the people, but He had no standing within the group of religious leaders of the day. He was not a teacher in their minds. He was a blasphemer and he was a heretic and he was one that was worthy of death. And so they're calling him a teacher is an indication that their concern isn't over justice and the woman caught in adultery. It's something else. They have very, very different motives here. We see this in number three. A trap is being set for Jesus. Verse 6, John adds this as a parenthetical explanation. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. I believe this also fits very well in the Passion Week before they had come to the end and said, this is it, we're going to go get him. I believe this is another part of that whole process, is they're looking for an opportunity to accuse him of breaking the law. They couldn't do that with his healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath, as we saw in the Feast of Tabernacles. So here's a part of this trap that's being set, and here's why this is very transparent. For the omnipotent Jesus, who is hearing what they're saying and knows the hearts of men, first of all, why bring her to Jesus? He was not a judge. He was not a member of the Sanhedrin. He was not even an acknowledged rabbi. He had no standing within the religious leadership to render any kind of a decision about this woman's punishment for this sin that she has been caught in. And this wasn't an issue that would ever require a rabbi to be consulted. It wasn't 
kind of gray. Is this wrong? What do we do with this? Can you give an opinion about this? This is about as clear as a violation of the teachings of the Bible as you're ever going to find. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So there wasn't any reason to consult Jesus. There was no primary concern to uphold the law. If that was their primary concern, they would have taken that, taken her to their court and they would have tried her on the spot. There was no need to go to Jesus or any other rabbi. A very clear violation of this, of this law to not commit adultery. Second thing that's very obvious in this is the woman was caught in the very act, right? So where's the man? What happened to him? Did he overpower him? Did he escape through a window? What happened to the guy? It takes two to tango, right? But this guy's nowhere to be found. So it's possible that he was involved in this setup so that the woman could be caught in the very act. And perhaps his being involved explains why he wasn't there. He was a part of the setup and they weren't bothered by him violating this strict rule about committing adultery. How else would they have known how to catch this woman in the very act. So the trap is pretty transparent when you look at it from these particulars. But there's a little bit more to this trap that isn't as obvious to us. The first one is this. The law of Moses, as they are appealing to, requires death by stoning for adultery. Yet the Roman law forbids the Jew from carrying out any execution of any kind. Now this is why when the Jews wanted to put Jesus to death, they had to go to Pilate and they had to go to Herod to get permission for the execution because they were not allowed to, to have any executions apart from Roman authorization. So Jesus was known for being forgiving towards sinners in their minds. He was very lenient. He was probably going to look the other, look the other way, just kind of gloss over it. They didn't expect that he was going to do anything. So if Jesus doesn't condemn the woman, according to Mosaic law, they have grounds to accuse him. If he does condemn her, then he has now violated Roman law, and they can drag Jesus into the Roman courts and try him for authorization of an execution. So the challenge brought here by the scribes and the Pharisees raises a much deeper issue, and that is this. How do we harmonize divine justice and mercy? And that's really at the crux of this. And this is all wound up in how Jesus responds to this. How do we harmonize divine justice, you're going to get stoned for adultery, and divine grace? God's law is holy. God himself is holy. But the law knows nothing of forgiveness. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 2.12, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Romans 4.15, for the law brings about wrath. Ezekiel 18.4, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. So you have this divine justice and you have this law that has no room for grace. So how then does a holy God forgive sinners without violating His own holy law? Well, the answer is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, His sacrificial death to pay our penalty in His own self to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's justice. Romans 8.3 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so what we will see is in Jesus' response to this very clear decision by the religious leaderships is the harmonization of grace and justice. So this dramatic scene in the temple courtyard has now reached its climax. The woman has been put out for public mockery. Jesus, in the mind of the religious leaders, is painted into a quandary that there's no way he can escape. The scribes and the Pharisees are delighted thinking they've caught Jesus in this impossible dilemma. I would imagine that the crowd around Jesus was quiet. You would have heard a pin drop. They're watching intently to see how Jesus was going to react. And so we come to the second, third section here, and that is our challenge. The challenge that this predicament presents for not only Jesus, but the woman and the religious leaders. Verse 6, second part of that. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So the first thing we see here is a very passive response. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he instead stoops down on the ground and begins to write something. This is the only statement in any of the Gospels where Jesus wrote anything. And it's amazing how much interest there is in what exactly Jesus wrote. The speculation is rampant. It's wide. It's incredibly varied in what people speculate that Jesus actually wrote on the ground. But there's some interesting things that scholars have been able to put together that are possibilities, but again, are mere speculation. It's possible that he wrote down the names of her accuser acting out Jeremiah 17.13. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 17.13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord the spring of living water. Perhaps Jesus is writing the names of this lady's accuser because he knows that they have forsaken the Lord they claim to have loved. Another possibility is that he's made a list of her accuser's sins. The word right here in this verse is the Greek word katagrapho. It has the nuance of making a list. And so many believe that Jesus, knowing the hearts of these men, was beginning to list out their specific sins by name. Don't know. It's possible he wrote out the Ten Commandments, identifying the law of God. Some believe that Jesus may, in fact, have written out Exodus 23.1, which reads like this, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And this makes a little bit more sense as we get to the end of our passage here today. So what Jesus wrote on the ground is entirely secondary to this encounter that he had with this woman caught in adultery. It's what he says that we can be sure of, and it's what he says that we really need to focus on. So we see here, secondly, a persistent inquiry. Verse 7a, when they, but when they persisted in asking him, so they kept on questioning. We don't know how long Jesus was stooped on the ground writing in the dirt. It could have been a few seconds. It could have been a couple of minutes. But whatever the length of time was, it gave these scribes and these Pharisees plenty of time to keep pushing and pushing and pushing, insistently demanding that he give an answer to this question. They weren't satisfied in asking only once, and they weren't going to allow him to sit there passively and doodle on the ground doing whatever he was doing. So they continued to ask, demanding for an answer. Number three, we see a turning of the tables. 
Jesus says, He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, it is very, very probable that what Jesus is quoting here is a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 17.7. Here's what Deuteronomy 17.7, and this is effective for anybody who has been sentenced to any capital crime. 17.7 says, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so according to this law handed down by God in the book of Deuteronomy, the witnesses to this capital crime were going to be the first ones who were expected to throw the stones, but they are not allowed to have participated in the crime themselves. So if you have witnessed something, it means you're innocent in the whole affair. You haven't been a part of it. You haven't plotted. You haven't been an accomplice. You are completely innocent of whatever crime has taken place. Now, when Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone, he doesn't set the expectation that these individuals should be free from any, from any kind of sin that weren't to be perfect in their execution of how they live their lives before the Lord. So he's not talking about being sinless, sinlessly perfect. It doesn't mean that one must be free from lust before one can legitimately condemn adultery. That would not have fit into the scribes and the Pharisees' understanding of what the law meant, even though Jesus did connect these in Matthew 5.28. So what scholars have deduced is this. It's probable then that these individuals who are accusing this woman of adultery and catching her in the very act have themselves been guilty of this very sin. So it's possible that Jesus knows that they were a part of this setup or Jesus knows in fact that these individuals who have brought this woman into the center of the temple court are in fact adulterers themselves. We can't know for certain, but it makes sense in understanding what Jesus referred back to in Deuteronomy 17.7. I'm certain that when the Jewish leaders heard Jesus' response, they were absolutely stunned. They thought they had him painted in a quarter. They thought he was going to either violate the Mosaic law by letting her go, or he was going to violate Roman law by allowing her to be stoned. His response neither denies the woman's guilt or the sanctity of the law. Instead, he exposes how the religious leaders were unfit to be her judge and her executioner. Very consistent with what Jesus has taught about judgment in the Bible. Before you're focused on pulling out the speck in your brother's eye, get the log out of your own, right? We're not to judge hypocritically. In the same way we judge others, we ourselves will be judged. Jesus taught a lot about that. Very consistent with what he says here. So he exposes their inability to be her judge because either they were a part of this setup or they themselves were adulterers. After rendering this verdict, if you will, and silencing the critics, Jesus stoops back down and begins to write in the dust again. I would imagine a very hushed crowd at this point, having nothing to say in response to this. 
So during this time of awkward quietness, conviction begins to settle in on the hearts of these scribes and on these Pharisees. And we see a number four, a hypocrisy exposed. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Now, like the leaders, they have been caught in the very act, the very act of their own hypocrisy. They are finally convicted of their sin, and they begin to disperse one by one. You know, it's always more comfortable to focus on the sins of other people than it is to focus on the sins of ourselves. That self-scrutiny can be very, very difficult and very, very uncomfortable and very, very unwanted in our individual lives. So it tells us here, John tells us that the older ones begin to leave first, possibly because they were more guilty of this sin than the younger ones were. Perhaps they were more sensitive. Perhaps the conviction was greater. Whatever it was, they began to leave and eventually all leave. And here we have Jesus and the woman standing there. He's the only one qualified to deliver any verdict, any judgment in this woman's life. So we don't know what happened to the crowd that he was teaching, if they were still there and hushed silence once again in awe at the teaching of Christ. But we see in the last part of our section here the comfort that Jesus gives to this woman. Verses 10 and the beginning part of verse 11. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. Now remember in the Bible, woman is a very respectful term. It would be the same as saying, Ma'am. So Jesus says, Did no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. So the first thing we see here is a change of destiny. This woman, who was caught in the very act, and according to God's law, was deserving of death, is going to leave uncondemned. That's a change of destiny, isn't it? There's no one left to carry out the sentence. Only Jesus remains. And so he is the only one who is able and qualified to render a decision about her violation of this very clear law that brought with it such a very harsh punishment. As mentioned earlier, Jesus harmonizes justice and grace. A new life is offered to this woman. Verse 11 ends, and Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. So when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he's not ignoring her sin, and he wasn't minimizing the severity of her sin. There are a lot of people today who look at a verse like this and say, see, God is so willing to forgive my sin, all I have to do is just ask for it. Well, forgiveness doesn't apply, imply an acquittal, or a non-condemnation, it's attached to this stern charge to go and sin no more. To sin no more means to live a life differently than you have been living to this point. Forgiveness does not create a license to sin. In fact, it creates quite the opposite. Our forgiveness from sin is only secured at the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ requires our total commitment and it expects our transformation from sin into mimicking the holiness of Christ. We are to be conformed into His image. Friend, you don't get conformed into the image of Christ 
by committing all the sin you want and just claiming the ability to be forgiven because you profess to be a Christian. It just doesn't work that way. Our forgiveness is attached to the cross of Christ. It requires our total commitment and it expects our continued transformation. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul made no mistakes about it. The Bible is consistent in all of its pages. The expectation is very, very clear. Jesus' willingness to forgive this woman is no different than His willingness to forgive us based upon our lives being transformed by the love displayed to us by Jesus on the cross. You and I, each one of us, have been caught in the act of sin. Every single one. Because God sees it all and He knows it all. Now, you may not be guilty of adultery. But you and I stand before this holy law in need of a harmonization between divine justice and mercy. And this is what comes to us through Christ on the cross. You know, we we read a story like this and we can pat ourselves on the back and say, well, you know, I've never done anything that bad. And that's the problem. The problem is it's all sin. You're guilty of one point of the law. You're guilty of the entire law. A single sin disqualifies us from perfection. And so there is no hope apart from the cross of Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and think about the mercy that this woman needed. Think about the shame she felt. Publicly humiliated. In reality, her humiliation, her shame is no different than ours. We are equally in need of the grace of Christ to change us and set us free. Father, we thank you that we can look back at the cross, we can look back at our salvation, and we can celebrate the forgiveness that you made available to us. But Father, as we look at today, and as we look at yesterday, and as we think about tomorrow, we know there's a continued need for your mercy because we are just thoroughly sinful people. We might get all dressed up on the outside, but deep in our hearts, there's still a need for tremendous transformation. Father, we thank you that your mercy is new towards us every morning. We thank you that we can't exhaust your grace. And even though we may not have lived a life as despicable as a woman caught in adultery, we're still dirty in need of cleansing. Father, make new to us the richness of the salvation that you've given to us. Help us to consider the cost that was a part of our forgiveness. And as we think about this account that this woman had, this encounter that this woman had with Jesus, may we remember that we are just as needy as she was. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for what it is you continue to do for us through your love and through your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's celebrate God's mercy.